Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health. With Washington focused on the pandemic, economic recovery, and foreign affairs, non-pandemic healthcare policy has fallen off the radar to some extent. But there is actually much under discussion in D.C. and state capitals that could have a big impact on the healthcare system and its workforce. For insights into what is happening with healthcare policy, we turn today to a nationally respected healthcare thought leader, Dr. Adeze Anekochi. She is currently an operating partner on the healthcare team at the private equity firm. Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, where she works on creating a fiscally sustainable health system responsive to vulnerable communities. Previously, Dr. Anekwaji headed health programs at the White House Office of Management and Budget under President Obama, and has spent most of her career involved in different aspects of healthcare policy and economics. She is also an associate professor at the Milken Institute of Public Health at George Washington University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Van. You have such an impressive background.、Um, I am most curious what brought you to your current role, and how do you find your mission there? Yeah, so it's certainly not a planned stop, if you will.、Uh, when I was sitting and thinking about what I wanted to do in healthcare, even before that, when I was mostly just thinking about public policy as a career, I was focused on the public sector. You know, I started at the Congressional Budget Office more than 20 years ago, and my hope was to work on analyses and policy development around some of the biggest issues facing the country. And I really thought at the time that I would start and end there. I wanted to do a PhD. I, my plan was to do a PhD in public finance so that I could continue the same. Type of work at the time, you know,、uh, e-commerce was a term, and、uh, Amazon was relatively new, and we didn't know how we would capture taxes and revenue for various public entities, whether it's state or federal or county taxes. So this was, you know, we're old enough to remember when this was a big question, and I was very interested in studying how we would basically capture revenues and distribute resources from this new. Uh, mode of commerce, very far from healthcare, but not entirely, because I ended up in healthcare, and I can talk about that later. And the questions are not dissimilar. We're still talking about, for the most part,、um, in healthcare policy, Medicare, Medicaid being significant purchasers. Medicare, actually, the largest purchaser of health services in the world. And how do you buy the right thing for the right Medicare beneficiary at the right time? Right, and that's whether it's hospital services, outpatient care, physician care, long-term care, etc. All of that work. So a lot of public sector work, some private sector consulting work, and I ran a large consulting firm and took it through an acquisition or through an M&A process in 2020. And then after that, Walsh Carson called and said, "Hey, how about joining us as a as a as a partner here?" And I said, "You must have the wrong person. I am a woman." I'm a woman of color.、Um, I care about healthcare for poor people and vulnerable people. He says, "No, we have the right person." And I said that in a way, tongue in cheek, but not entirely, because private equity has there is not a black woman that I know in health in healthcare PE. 
private equity is essentially male. <laughs> it's mostly male. Um, but there are a number of women who were at some of the junior ranks. So I, I did not ever think of it as a, you know, a career option. But since I joined with all of those hats, right, my policy hat, my researcher, I'm a health services researcher by training. That's what my PhD is in. I get to bring all of that to my work as we look at assets to invest in, assets or companies to build that would make a meaningful contribution in whatever specific healthcare ecosystem we are interested in investing in. And that to me is incredibly meaningful. And to the extent I feel very much like I'm the only one, it's an op it's a reason, it was a reason for me to say yes and hopefully open doors for others because the table really should be as broad as possible uh, given what's happening in the private sector. Well, it is extraordinary to have women and women of color in, in these private equity seats. And I was wondering, because many of our uh, listeners are actually from the workforce development background, they have an understanding of the public sector, but can you give us a little bit of detail on what private equity is about? Yeah. So private equity is a way to invest in companies in, in the private sector. So public equities, we tend to think of basically the stock market, and you can buy shares of a company, etc. Everybody knows that. Private equity is where large, typically large institutional funds, and by that I mean groups like Calsters or CalPERS out in California, two of whom actually happen to be some of our largest investors. So public pension funds, the individuals who manage those accounts are responsible for having a balanced portfolio. So you wouldn't want every penny in the stock market, for example. You may, but probably if you think about a balancing of the portfolio, you may not. So those partners, that's what we call them. We call those managers limited partners, would allocate perhaps the majority of their huge or large pools of capital towards the public markets or public equities they allocate a minority, say 10, 15% towards private equity. So those are our sources of funds for the most part, the state of California, you know, Calsters, CalPERS, the state of Hawaii, state of Connecticut, we have a number of others. If you think about it from that perspective, private equity investment firms are fund managers because when we take that capital, or those sources of capital, we then go out onto the private market and say, what companies can we invest in and build something that is meaningful, right? We're healthcare, but you have the same conversations in utilities and transportation and technology that earns the return that our investors expect us to earn. And they also, at least in healthcare, they care what we do in, in, in the healthcare space. And we give them quarterly updates in person on the phone because they've got a stake in what we're building in the healthcare system, if you think about it. And so that's what private equity is. We find companies, we price them based on the good things and the bad things about them. We think about whether we can do anything meaningful, whether we can contribute to building out that company, expanding its footprint, serving more patients. And we want to do it at a reasonable return because our limited partners, our investors expect that we do that. That's how public employees, who are the original sources of capital, if you think about it, that's how they get to retire comfortably, because that's how their their investments grow over time. So that's what it is in a nutshell. You've previously said that healthcare is almost never only about health. 
context is everything. Can you share what you mean about that? If you're a physician or a nurse, you think about healthcare in you know within the four walls, right, of the hospital. And perhaps to the lay person, they think about healthcare as that. I walk into the hospital or I go to my physician's office and whatever is happening there is healthcare. But healthcare is also why did I need that care to begin with? What were some of the preceding factors that led to my need or the mix of needs that I'm now faced with? What happens to me when I leave that interaction? And so let me be more specific. If I am from a wealthy neighborhood, I have eaten relatively well. I've taken all my vitamins. I'm generally literate when it comes to health, like healthcare literacy. Nobody needs to tell me to stop smoking because I know that it's bad for me and I don't smoke, right? When you think about some health behaviors, that makes my interaction very different from I have limited education. I could not see a physician in the last 10 years, just didn't have health insurance. I am food insecure, a significant problem in this country. You know, most people don't know. Perhaps I'm even housing insecure. I may not have had a permanent residence in a long time. And I cope through the use of tobacco, perhaps even alcohol. There have been some moments, long moments of depression or some other mental health needs interspersed for which I have never sought treatment, right? That interaction within the healthcare system is dramatically different from the first person I described. So health, if you just think about you're here in this space for one thing, maybe you've had angina or something, right? Some, some medical condition. And we treat that without thinking about the context, the whole person, what some of their antecedent factors have been that have brought them to that point. Then we've missed an opportunity. So when I think about healthcare, I think about the environment, the socioeconomic status of the person, the household, if they have a support system, a network, you know, children or parents or family members or church members, the cultural context. There's so much that informs not just our health status, but even how we interact with the system that when we miss those, that's when we've missed an opportunity to really look at the person or the community. All of these um, variables, is this what is meant when, when folks talk about the social determinants of care? Exactly. Like these are the things that contribute to the, the medical issues. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I, I described it without the catch-all phrase is social determinants of care. But one of the factors, in fact, in this country, in the context of the United States, one of the most important, if not the most important, social determinant is race and ethnicity. So the data, the research on this is decades and decades old and pretty deep. It is the one thing that after you adjust or hold constant other variables like education, income, race remains a significant factor in predicting outcomes in healthcare, predicting interactions, positive or negative, when people interact with the healthcare system. Um, because this country has a history that we all know, maybe not as well as we should, but we, we have a history in this country of allocating resources by race. So where you live, 
good or bad, determined often by race, policies, access to housing, access to mortgages, access to good education, access to food. So, so many things have been organized by race that to neglect its impact on health, which of course is determined by all of these other factors. It's not, um, well, it would just be an incomplete look. So while we know, science tells us there are no genetic differences between people, any people, regardless of, you know, ancestral background, where you start to see those differences are some of these social factors that have been distributed, if you will, according to race. Uh, you make such a good point. I was in conversation with the Alzheimer Association, and, and what they made me aware of was that in terms of awareness, uh, Alzheimer, it's highly concentrated in the white communities. And so now they have a, a whole DEI concerted effort to reach out into diverse uh, community organizations to bring knowledge and awareness. And if yeah. if you're lacking that as a first step, you then won't be doing any more, right? So it, it's just exactly the first step of sort of some of the unconscious biases. Exactly. A and so when we first met, we were actually introduced through Beth Colbert of the Marco Alliance, whom you had previously worked with in D.C., and it was uh, specific to your interest in workforce issues in healthcare. So tell me more. Tell me more about that interest. Yeah. So Beth, who I don't think I make big decisions without talking to Beth, since she and I met while we were working for um, President Obama at the White House, when I told her that I was interested in looking at the space, workforce in particular, she sent me your link immediately. And I think she sent an introductory note that night. It was immediate. She says, move no further until you talk to her. And why was I interested in this? I, you know, we've had major disruptions in staffing among health systems, actually for, for quite a while. So it's not a new problem, but it was exacerbated by COVID. And what we've seen is uh, incredible burnout, just a very difficult work environment. And for nurses in particular, I'll speak in general terms, but nurses typically when, we, when we're talking about this, but respiratory therapists and others are other allied professionals are part of the equation. And, you know, in our work um, at Welsh Carson, we've got a strategic partnership with a group called the Health Management Academy, which is a peer group of health system executives, the top 150, I believe. I think together they account for 90% of all inpatient stays in the country. So a huge footprint, as, as big as you can be. So we hear from these executive leaders, whether they're CEOs, COOs, chief nursing officers, CNOs, etc. This is a problem, nurse staffing. There's a shortage in the supply. There's also a maldistribution, if you will, in the supply. You have more recently a wave of resignations and retirements, right? And aging of the population, but also just burnout and having better work, op work opportunities. Layer on top of that, what we have seen is um, a proliferation of travel companies, locum staffing, contingency staffing companies that have been raising their prices so significantly for health systems that it is some of these hospital systems have 
seen a hundred and a hundred and fifty percent increase in their in that budget line item. Completely unsustainable. And creating some inequities or imbalances among the workforce that are actually on the ground. So all of this leads to the question, well, what's the what's the solution? So I well, you know, my team and I, my colleagues and I started to look. And it turned out that, you know, when we think about what the problems are, there is no panacea for the main problem, which is that we don't have enough. We don't have enough nurses in the country. However, we also don't have a good way of optimizing the workforce that we do have. We don't have tech-enabled platforms that have been in use for any significant amount of time to help schedule people appropriately, to help optimize the workforce that you have within the system, within the hospital, or even within a geographic area. Predictive analytics has been non-existent, and that was another gap that we saw. The one thing we know that is not the solution, but one can certainly put money towards it and make money, is to invest in the travel companies where it doesn't solve any problem in terms of there's no meaningful addition, if you will, to the ecosystem. But if you were to pitch that as the sole you know, investment thesis, which is that you would invest in this and you would make a certain amount of money or a certain percentage or return over a number of years, you would, you would, because there are no immediate solutions. So that's why this is hard, right? Because at Welsh Carson, we're of the opinion and I think just of the general philosophy that we don't want to be part of the narrative of let's walk in and just, you know, put money towards something and collect. There's a real opportunity to build something meaningful. Maybe that's cobbling together a number of businesses because we do have that in our ethos where you can buy and build. So you buy one, start with one, build it out, additional mergers and acquisitions so that you can solve sort of additional problems or identify and build out additional capabilities within a, a business. Um, this is not altruism, right? We operate in a capitalistic system. So yes, while you build, you would also be growing the value of the company so that we generate the, the returns we expect to. And so that's the interest, but it's tough. And so we are going to be patient and look for the right assets as we as we explore this investment theme. Historically, I mean, this is not the first time we've had a healthcare shortage. I mean, if, if I remember back when I was having my son at, here at Stanford uh, University, the nurses came from other countries to work at the bedside. And what's easy for corporations is to transact for talent, right? To transact if the talent exists. And to your point about the traveler nurse, uh, nurses, for example, it's the same limited pool. You're just dealing, you know, from one pocket or one employer to put into a different employer. You're not enlarging the pool and breaking that cycle. So your employers are ending up paying three times uh, for the same person. And I've heard of situations where the existing worker actually quits their job, gets hired as a traveler, and comes back to work in that exact same place, but gets paid three times. So I can see how painful this is and why it would be like a number two or number three issue on every healthcare leader's mind. So is there a space for combining intentional workforce strategy as you make investments in, in companies that are in the healthcare space? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, there is a space. There is space for that. And that's why I don't think it's a short-term 
uh, solution. Another platitude you hear sometimes, or just the saying, you know, all healthcare is local, right? So if you are creating major disruptions in a particular MSA or a geographic area where they may be a couple of, you know, large, a few large hospitals, that doesn't really serve anyone. As I look at this, this industry and think about what a solution has to look like, it, it has to capitalize on the existing ecology, right? I've made a, a number of my colleagues read up on the ecological model, which I, I, I just can't get away from the academic background. But, you know, it basically says that for an entity, for a company or health system, we recruit from the existing pool of uh, staff or nurses. And so the extent to which we can also invest in that existing pool, grow your own, another term you might hear in health services, where you can help train additional people within that pool so that they continuously renew, refresh, and people are not stretched thin. And, you know, we basically intentionally build out a workforce that serves the needs of the community, that is not distant from the community, that isn't flown in from somewhere else without an appreciation for the culture, for the patients, for you know anything. Yes, it addresses that gap within the healthcare system, but it can create discontinuities or just breaks, if you will. And we have evidence for this, by the way, that quality of care can be threatened by the sort of fly-in model, even if it relieves some of the pressure in terms of having a body on the floor or on the bedside. So that intentionality is what I think will take some patience. We've got companies that, you know, sponsor nurses coming in from other countries, the Philippines in particular, but I know that there are a number of companies that are looking at other Anglophone countries as in Africa, for example, Nigeria, Ghana, and other countries, you know, just around the globe. That creates a bit of a moral dilemma because most of these countries, maybe the Philippines, I think is ahead because I think they actually train nurses in excess for export. Most others don't do that. Their health systems are already stretched and quite limited by a shortage of supply. So to facilitate the, the migration away from these already strapped countries into the United States because we're, we're having our own issues creates a bit of a moral dilemma. But we're starting to see that because the pain points are so acute here. And, you know, this is a resource, well-resourced country. And you, you would expect after a while, people might set aside some of those dilemmas and, and do what they have to do to get nurses on, on, on staff. So we're, we're starting to see that, but there's absolutely room to be intentional about what we're creating within communities and within regions. I'm glad you brought up the point of healthcare is local and how do you create a workforce that's not distant from the community? Because you can import a workforce, right? But again, especially with regards to healthcare, with regards to teaching, it's that every every community needs their proportional share because it's a it's a pervasive shortage rather than just, you know, California, for example, which is where I am right now, stealing from the neighboring state. Mm-hmm. So if we don't produce our proportional share, then I think it's a kind of a fallacy to think that we can continue poaching. I agree. Yeah, I agree, which is why this is a longer term conversation. We're starting to see some training programs basically grow up, right? Entities 
health systems create their own nursing training programs because nursing schools cannot produce quickly enough the number of nurses we need in the country to actually meet demand. Will that solve the problem? I don't know because I don't know how many of them are actually creating their own, you know, RN, registered nurse training programs. But why we have this, I don't want to say cap, but, it, you know, in some ways we've artificially capped our supply. Uh, there aren't, apparently there aren't enough professors necessarily to meet the demand in terms of ingesting more students into the existing nursing schools. There are many options for it. the average BSN or primarily BSN. There are many options. Many don't choose to go work on the floor of a hospital because they can do other things or they see it as a stepping stone towards other management roles. So we have to really give a careful look to the supply and on balance the different avenues that people with this certification, nursing certification, uh, can take so that we have a full appreciation for what we need to meet the demands of not just, well, we can't meet it today, but maybe in the near and the medium term. And then, of course, long term, the need to only increase over time. I uh, was speaking to someone who's involved with uh, UCLA, and he said that entirety of UCLA produces 40 nurses a year. So you can imagine uh, we need to be adding zeros at the back end. And <laughs> employers, we're going to need to figure out more collaborative ways of solving this problem rather than each organization tackling it on their own because the incremental approach yeah. is just not going to do industry what it needs to do. Yeah. Major retailers like Walmart and CVS have uh, like making big moves into healthcare delivery. What do you think the impact will, will have on healthcare quality and equity? I think one very important thing that they're doing is expanding access. I try to take off any professional hat when I walk into like a CVS. They've got these health hubs and just think about it from the experience, uh, you know, as a, as a person. You can get so much primary care at these retail locations that are open after work so that if you're driving home and you've gotten home by 6.30 or you can get there by 6.30 through 7, 8, you can actually see a nurse practitioner um, and, you know, do a lot. There's a long list of things you can do all in the primary care space. That has to be applauded because absent these retail uh, locations, most people would simply forego care. They just, or if they, if it was absolutely essential, painful or, you know, acute, they would go to the emergency department. So we have to recognize that one of the most important things you can do right now is to just create the space and the opportunity for people to get primary care. At the same time, the extent to which you can use telemedicine, tele, so whether it's telephone or video, is further expanding that access and that engagement with providers from those companies, whether it's a CVS or Walmart, um, and also access to pharmacy, right? You need a, a prescription for something, they can write it, you can fill it, or they can just mail it to you. So I, the access portion, I don't think can be overstated in terms of the difference it's making. When we think about the clientele at Walmart, in many, many neighborhoods uh, where CVS is located, that increased or expanded access can have a meaningful effect uh, for communities that have typically been vulnerable or underserved. How much does that address health equity, I think, is 
yet to be seen. In a lot of Walmarts in this country, you can go to the pharmacy, come out of the pharmacy, walk into the, the main store, buy fresh food, do your grocery shopping, buy clothes, you know, get your glasses if you need, you know, get a hearing test. There's so much that you can do in these one-stop locations, even beyond health, but that again, facilitate just your ability to live comfortably. So Walmart pioneered, I remember, you probably remember this too, with the $4 formulary, getting all these pharmaceuticals for $4. They had the negotiating power, they can price at that rate and just made it so affordable for people. And I don't remember exactly what drugs, but these were common drugs, prescription. And I know that the head of Walmart Health right now has been working on expanding care through telemeans. Um, in addition to, you know, recognizing the importance of brick and mortar, because people do come in, people come into Walmart, especially in rural areas. So there's a lot to be said for the expansion of care in those locations. Well, let me pick up on your comments about telehealth and telemedicine. The uptick in adoption is one of the bright sides of the pandemic. Um we previously talked about care moving into the home, and that's being made more possible by telehealth and telemedicine adoption. How are you thinking about care in the home, hospital in the home these days? So we certainly see movement in that direction and a lot of investments to support the innovations in that, in that direction. One of the things we talked about that was actually eye-opening to me, because I, I had thought of it, but not deeply until you said it. And you said it as somebody who is not in healthcare. So that made me pause. That we can't assume that it's an on switch for existing staff when health is moved into the home. If you have not been trained to deliver health in a home and you're trained to work in a hospital or a long-term care facility, we can't assume that if all health, say, were to move into the home, that people will just automatically know exactly what to do. I had thought of that, but I hadn't given it enough thought until you said it. And not only does it make sense, you probably don't remember saying this to me, but <laughs> it is true. It is actually quite true. And what we now see is that for a number of these newer, earlier stage companies that are deploying health at home interventions, there's a good amount of training that has to come with those modalities. If you're sending a nurse to the home or a uh, an assistant of any sort. They have to know how to assess fall risks, for example. Things that may not necessarily exist in an institutional setting. Carpets that are folded in inconvenient ways that if a senior were to fall, they would fracture a hip and that would lead to this cascade of terrible outcomes. How do you assess independence, right, at a very nuanced level? Activities of daily living are one thing, and activities of daily living, there are five ADLs, like bathing, using the bathroom, getting up, transferring yourself, that type of feeding yourself, that type of thing. But you also have these independent activities of daily living, which are somewhat elevated measures. Can you manage your finances, for example? Can you cook for yourself? Not just feed yourself, but can you actually prepare a meal, right? And so assessing those criteria in order to measure whether somebody can actually reliably heal and age in place, like age at home, are going to be increased needs. We should not assume that every nurse or every clinician, you know, 
can do that. So there's there's a movement that I think we're yet to see. We're at the very earliest stages. Right now, we're just trying to staff nurses anywhere, <laughs> um, including a number of these tech-enabled companies that where nurses are working primarily remotely. A lot of new companies, a lot of women's health companies are hiring nurses all over the country. They're all remote because a lot of the younger folks are quite okay with a primary mode of communication and engagement being through telehealth. So there's this competition for an already very limited pool. Well, it makes me wonder whether nurses actually have to perform that function. It seems like a different classification, maybe not so well-trained as a a nurse, can go out and do this uh, fall assessment, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Different aids, sometimes personal care aids, home health aids, etc. But if a nurse is out there, you want the nurse to be able to do more than just administer drugs. You want the nurse to be able to do other things that they may not necessarily be trained to do right now. Again, in the home setting, which can have lots of people, noise, just, you know, it's, it's just a very different place of work when you think about where clinicians of all levels are accustomed to working. It may be a harder environment. I, I spoke to someone who had run a, a business uh, where they were dealing with chronic care in the home and they were using respiratory therapists, but they really had to retrain all of them from working in the hospitals to actually going to the home. Yeah, And that included uh, just having the soft skills, right? The the, exactly. the trusted relationship was so much more important because it was in the home environment. Exactly. Well, I want to, um, you know, give you, you an opportunity to talk about some of the uh, state and federal healthcare policies that are you're watching. What would you love our listeners to to understand? So that's actually a harder question these days than it has typically been. <laughs> You know, this administration has been so busy on COVID, right? Just trying to get things under control and return us to some semblance of normalcy. And even at that, we're, we're redefining what normal is as we speak. Um, so I think in terms of policies, one related to COVID is that we should expect within the coming months that the end of the public health emergency will probably be seen, so the rolling back of the PHE. And with that, some of your listeners may know, came a lot of waivers for, you know, some of the telehealth care that we've just been talking about. The reimbursement for much of that was actually facilitated by the public health emergency uh, provisions. Unfortunately, we will also see states begin to conduct redeterminations for Medicaid, right? So public health emergency Medicaid expansion came very quickly. We're going to see that once that rolls off and states begin to conduct redeterminations for eligibility for Medicaid, we're going to see a significant drop off, perhaps up to double digit percentage. But that will lead to, again, we'll start to see people without any health insurance, which has a direct effect on how and whether they can seek and obtain care. So I think your listeners who are interested in health should be paying attention to those, at least those two, because coverage is so important. So how do we then effectively steer people to healthcare insurance on the exchanges, on the state-based ex- exchanges, for example, then that takes on additional prominence. There are others, but they're probably more niche and more uh, specialized. These are two I think, high-level and important ones. Well, Adese, I am so grateful that you were able to spend time with us. I learned so much from listening to uh, all your advice and counsel, 
And in addition, I am just cheering you on in the work that you're doing. I mean, thank you for, you know, breaking all sorts of ceilings and forging the way, especially in this private equity realm. Thank you. I'm Vantone Quinlevin with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. <music>